Welcome to episode 112 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Rear Admiral Melissa Burt. She is currently serving in the U.S. Coast Guard, and she currently serves as the Judge Advocate General and Chief Counsel of the Coast Guard. She leads a dedicated group of 500 legal professionals who are responsible for delivery of all legal services in support of the Coast Guard's missions, its units, and its people. I really enjoyed getting to talk to Melissa about her experience in the Coast Guard. She attended the Coast Guard Academy when there were only 10% women, and today there are approximately 30% women, and she has been assigned to a number of different interesting assignments. She also talked about her experience on September 11th and how the Coast Guard changed, and she also talked about the work that she has been doing to help provide advocacy for women who are serving in the military and what she's doing today. So there's a lot to get into, so let's get started. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military Podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show, Melissa. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? I was in school in Atlanta, Georgia. My father was a civil rights lawyer. My mom's a teacher. And my father thought it would be cool. He was in the Coast Guard at the end of World War II. He's 93 now, and he liked the idea that the Coast Guard does good things uh, for Americans. And I did it really just because he suggested it. And I, there was a cover of a magazine, the Smithsonian, I think, that I saw with a woman on a sailboat who was a Coast Guard Academy cadet. And it looked really cool because I had never sailed before or really been on the water at all. So it was so, it looked so exotic to me and kind of like it would be an exciting experience. So I went to the Coast Guard Academy and that's uh, how I came into the service. And I know the Coast Guard Academy today is really elite and like one of the hardest academies to get into. At least that's what a Coast Guard Academy graduate told me. What was it like the process of applying and attending the Coast Guard Academy? So the application process is actually a little easier than the other service academies because it's not appointment-based. But the result of that, I guess, is that people tend to go there who are from New England and they're sort of accustomed to that sailboat sailing lifestyle and people from Florida and the West Coast, it's not, although we do have some people from the Midwest, it's probably more of a coastal attraction. But we're doing really well in terms of more women now. When I went, there were only 10% women, which was not, that's not a good dynamic. It's great to be more co-ed. Now we're over 30% women. So that's been a big factor in making the academy more of a college than just a military institution that's very old school. Yeah, that's a big change. And it's so exciting to hear that more women are looking into the Coast Guard and attending 
the academy, and it's just probably changing the whole Coast Guard as a whole with that many women instead of 10%. It is. And the dynamic, too, from Title IX, I forgot about that. That was really a game changer for women because once you start spending the same amount on sports for women as for men, all of a sudden, we have we have unbelievable women athletes there now. I mean, some folks who are going to be on the Olympic, U.S. Olympic team later. I mean, it's just, it's attracted women who ordinarily might not be interested in going to a smaller academy or military academy, but now they realize that they'll be able to compete nationally and internationally, and the funding is there just as it is for their male counterparts. So it's, that's been a big, a big change as well. Yeah, that's really cool. So after you graduated, what did you do next? So I spent my first two tours on the water. I was uh, assigned to two different ships. The first ship was operated out of Charleston, and we worked in the southeastern United States and then in the Caribbean. We did aids to navigation mainly, but we also did some occasional search and rescue and a little bit of law enforcement. But it was mostly an aids to navigation vessel, which meant we worked uh, in the harbors in the ports in Savannah and Charleston and then down in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. So it was really a great way to start my career. And were you on a rotational sea duty where you were like out for three months and then home or? That's a good question. So I purposely chose a small vessel that did this kind of work because I liked going home (laughs) and I just knew the lifestyle for me was not going to be great being underway for long periods because you're the only, I was the only woman on both ships I served aboard, which is just not a great dynamic. So the first ship I served on was, usually we'd go out for a few days or a week. When we went to the Caribbean, we would go out for maybe three or four weeks, but we were pulling into ports and and breaking it up a little bit. That made it a little more doable. It was, uh, I guess you'd say it's a lonely uh, experience, I think, at sea for women, unless you're with, uh, you know, your friendship group, because you have to be very careful on who you're socializing with. So I did not socialize with members of the crew or the wardroom really much at all in the four years that I spent at sea. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic to talk about because a lot of women who deploy face a similar circumstance. They're not the only woman, but they might be the only like female officer in their unit or just the dynamics and how challenging and being lonely is something that is talked about a lot on the podcast. That's interesting. And one of the things you know we're trying to grapple with is I'm personally concerned about retaining women in the service when the expectation is that uh, people don't date at the same units, and yet that's where people are meeting. And so, you know, it concerns me if people are hiding relationships and, and living kind of a double life. I, I don't think that's healthy. And I also don't know that relationships uh, between peers are as destructive as the uh, illicit relationships that happen uh, when you don't allow any dating. So I, I'm something I've been thinking about over over the past few years is how how do we deal with reality in a more 
productive way so that we are both addressing people's needs and ensuring that we have a good, you know, a good focus in the service. I don't want to, you know, have something where we don't respect core values and that can go either way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When my husband and I started dating an ROTC, nobody knew for like the first year. And it was because when we were doing ROTC stuff, we like stayed apart. And then occasionally people would see us on campus, but we kept it a hidden, like no one really knew for about six months to a year that we were dating and then I don't remember what happened that someone figured it out so it seems to have worked out so yeah yeah we've been married yeah 14 years so wow that's great so after that assignment what was your next role so after I had two tours at sea the Coast Guard sent me to law school so I went full-time to GW in Washington DC and During that time, I was a student. During the summers, I was an intern in our different legal offices. And I also had the pleasure of being a White House fellow during uh, my my free time, I guess you could say. And that was just a social, basically, you're just a social aide, not a White House fellow, a White House social aide. And so you go to these events and help out. And they like having military people at the White House because it lens of formality to events. So for me, that was just an amazing experience. I met a lot of other great military officers, men and women during that time. So that was wonderful. That sounds really cool. Do you have like a favorite event that you got to be a part of or a story that you can share from your time at the White House? The thing I remember the most was I was there working the event when President Clinton was going to bring Yasser Arafat and Rabin from Israel together. And it was a big event. It was outside. And I saw Katie Couric was one of the broadcasters covering it. And I saw her and I said, oh, I love I love your coverage of different things. I'm a big fan of yours. And she said, I'm so nervous. This is such an exciting event. And I thought, oh my gosh, Katie Couric is even feeling this, uh, this excitement. So I remember that. And I remember watching, thinking I have like, you know, a first row seat in history and watching the the president kind of push them together to try to get them to commit to working together. And it was just amazing. I, I just felt like I'm I'm standing here during something that will, you know, never happen again in our history. It never has happened. So it was uh that's my memory, probably my biggest memory. I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. <laughs> that's so awesome. That's so interesting to hear about. I, I that's so cool. So after you graduated from law school, then what was the next step in your career? So that was so much fun. I uh, went to a legal office uh, down in Miami and we dealt with all kinds of, I would say all kinds of issues, but I like the drugs and the thugs as I call them. So I did a lot of the law enforcement advice and this was an exciting time for the Coast Guard and for probably the State Department as well, we were negotiating all of these agreements with countries in the Caribbean to work with them. So that involved using basically, we could patrol in their waters. Uh, we had ship riders sometimes. Sometimes we just had agreements that if we found people, we would notify them and they would give us permission to you know, decide who's going to prosecute. But a lot of these negotiations with the Caribbean countries, and they were kind of new then. Now we have, we have uh, 45 and it's not, we exercise them all the time. We've been updating them, but back then it was new and exciting. And I remember one uh, particular case, 
in uh, the British Virgin Islands in Tortola, where they wanted help because they hadn't done a British prosecution under one of these agreements before. And so they asked me to come and work with them. We were in a courtroom, and you can just kind of picture this, a small Caribbean island of Tortola, a courtroom with a picture of the queen. The judges wear uh, the, the wig. <laughs> and there was just this tiny little courtroom in the Caribbean where the British were doing a prosecution of a drug case that they had done with an American law enforcement detachment on one of their British ships. So it was really interesting. I had a great good time during that tour. I did uh, some courts martial as well. I was a prosecutor and uh, I was one of those people who would get probably way too involved with victims. <laughs> so it was, for, for, for me, being a prosecutor was very meaningful. I had a, a wonderful experience uh, getting to know people and, and working with our agents who were wonderful. So it was, a, it was a really fun tour. I was learning a lot, learning how to be an officer as a, as a JAG and learning you know, how to just take on different responsibilities where Basically, they were sort of uncharted territory. We were also using some new equipment to detect uh, drug residue, which now is very common equipment, but at the time it was new. And so I, I also would go to federal court to try to make sure that the evidence could be used. So it was, it was just a lot of, it was, that was an exciting tour for me. It was four years and it was just one, one new thing after another. I learned a lot. I had so much fun. I love being part of the legal program in the Coast Guard. So much of what the Coast Guard does is based on authorities. So our, our lawyers are involved in everything. And I'm glad I went down that path. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. And I think sometimes when you think of like lawyers, you think of like court martials. And I don't think I've thought about what else do military lawyers do, but I know there's so much more because when I was in Afghanistan, I had to go find a lawyer to do a POA and I know he was doing lots of different stuff employed. And so I know there's so many aspects. So it's interesting to hear your perspective of what you're doing, especially for the Coast Guard, because I think a lot of people, it's like a mystery around what the Coast Guard does. (laughs) Yes, we're we're more, you know, the We're not the same. I think some of people think uh, we're like a mini Navy, but we're not at all uh, like the Navy. Uh, A lot of what we do is maritime shipping, uh, regulating shipping, port security. All those things are are just wrapped in legal authorities. So our operational lawyers, and, and I say operations, meaning any kind of operation, whether it's inspecting a vessel or whether it's doing law enforcement or search and rescue, all of those things uh, require some understanding of what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do because we're not doing things that are just based on a military order. So, you know, in the in the Army or the Air Force, you're looking at an order from above to say you can do these things. But for Coast Guard people, they're doing things every day in their communities, whether it's responding to an oil spill or whatever it is, they have to know what authorities they have when they show up on the scene. So it's relying on people to think about things and to know what they are allowed to do, what's permissible and what they should do. Yeah. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, you were on active duty when September 11th happened, right? I was. Yeah. I'd love to hear about what that day was like and if or how the Coast Guard changed during the response Uh, and after. Everything changed. So that day I was stationed in the port of LA and Long Beach and I was driving up to 
the Channel Islands to visit one of our stations, I think, that morning. And of course, the timing is a little different because we're three hours earlier, but I was driving up and I started hearing this news and just so perplexed, like it just didn't seem real. And I remember calling my my boss at the time and I said, I'm going to come come home and uh, we'll come back. And I got back to the unit and our, our command, it was a pretty large command, and we we basically stood up, uh, we would say, a, an incident command or a unified command. We, we call it, we, we have a terminology that I don't know, the, the rest of the military doesn't use this necessarily, but the federal government does this sort of thing where you're able to deal with an emergency by bringing people in who have different skill sets. So we knew that everything was changing and we had to deal with the port because the port is a place that you want to make sure that you keep opened during an emergency, but it's also you want to protect it from vulnerabilities. So that day, we we sort of started standing up this command. And that evening, we called together a kind of town hall. We called the industry together, the port officials, the uh, immigration, customs, all of the folks that uh, FBI, anybody who is a stakeholder sort of in that region. And we set up this town hall and we talked about what we think we needed to do. And we incorporated all of them in this process. And we decided we needed to vet all of these vessels that were coming into the port, make sure they were safe. And we did a combination of, we had these boarding teams go out with some law enforcement, Coast Guard, and they would check out the vessels, basically. And then we started running information about the passengers and crew lists before they came to the port. And we started doing a lot of a lot of different things, but it was all ad hoc. I mean, we were just coming up with things that we needed to do because there was really no rules for this. So we did that. I think I was probably... I don't, I don't know when I finally went home to get some sleep, but I, I remember sleeping on the, the floor of my office for a couple of nights. But we, we got everything kind of going in this rhythm. We had some really funny experiences early on. We had some intelligence about this ship coming in that might have something dangerous aboard. And so the FBI put together this, they had a SWAT team with some dogs that we're going to bring on board. We planned this little operation with them. We, we brought them down. We brought our, our station with the, the boats that were going to take them out to this ship before it came into port. And the dogs had never been at sea before. <laughs> so they would not get on the boat. It was funny. They were, they were like, what are you doing to me? So that was kind of an amusing experience. But in general, it was exciting because once again, it was new, sort of uncharted territory, and it paved the way for major international changes in, in port security. And of course, for the United States, when we incorporated it, it became the Maritime uh, Transportation Security Act. So it gave us even more authority to sort of look at what's going on in a port and take action. And, and also to have information in advance from any any foreign company, any, any shipping that's coming into the States. So it was a really a landmark. 9-11 changed a lot for us. We moved into the Department of Homeland Security when it was created, but it it really changed the Coast Guard significantly. It was, I I knew that was what was going to happen. Not that I knew we were going to go into Department of Homeland Security, but I think probably everybody who was alive on that day and was watching the news knew that America would never be the same. It was just so harrowing and so confusing. Like what, what on earth could be happening? 
So that's what I remember of 9-11. Yeah, I've been to the Long Beach port. Well, I guess I haven't been there, but I've driven over the bridge and I've seen it. And it's huge. And just to hear you talk about like all the changes and like going to see the ships, it's not like one or two ships. There's so many ships. And so if you've never been there and you're listening, it's so big. (laughs) I don't really know how to explain it. It's just so big. Like there's this big long bridge and there's just all these containers everywhere. And I mean, it's really cool to see, but I just, if you're listening and you don't really know like the size, it's just so big. It is. It's massive. And trying to, to this day, trying to track all of these containers and, 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 you know, ensure that they're safe. It's an unending mission. And I don't know that we'll ever be able to guarantee that every container is safe, but we've come a long way from where we were. And a lot of that is requiring the businesses who ship the containers to be responsible. So they seal them in a certain way. If the seal is broken, then that's a problem. There's, so there's a lot of things that we've done internationally to help with, we call it, I guess, supply chain security. All of that happened as a result of 9-11. Yeah, that's something that I never really thought about, about how the port system changed. And I think we always think of like, oh, we went to war, but then there was so much stuff. And the Coast Guard, because they protect us, it's so interesting to hear your perspective on how that changed everything. So it's really cool to talk about. So I don't want to skip everything in your career, but I want to see if there's anything between September 11th and when you became a, well, I would say general, but an admiral in the Coast Guard. And if there's anything that stood out or that you want to talk about before we jump to that part of your career. So I had a chance to decide whether I wanted to stay in the law or go back to operations, which is what I was doing in in Los Angeles, Long Beach. I was doing a a fellowship at Harvard Kennedy School, which was a blast. And I said, you know, I really kind of want to go back to operations and operational command. And at that point, I had been away for a number of years. My detailer, as we call them, the the human resources person who was assigning me said, you need to go as a deputy somewhere because you've been away from this for a while, but we can find a place for you if that's what you want to do. Or, you know, if you're interested in being a base commander that just does, you know, more like logistics and support, we could probably work that out as well. And I said, I'm not really a base person at that point. I just wasn't interested in, I like the operational stuff. So I said, I'm I'm happy to be a deputy. And then uh, I got a call in in March, uh, which is kind of early for, you know, the fellowship went basically through June if I wanted to stay there. So I got a call in March and the detailer said, if you want to go to Alaska, we think you'd be a good fit. The commander there is being relieved for cause because it's uh, a toxic climate. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I would be going to a place that I've never been (laughs) And uh, it seemed really exotic. And I would be going to a command where people would be welcoming me. So I thought, what a good, what a good idea. So uh, I went there and, and I packed up everything in April. I left the school early and reported in. And it was an incredible experience uh, that having command, being able to do all kinds of things, watching people grow and do what they wanted, sort of empowering people to do things. We had our chiefs, that's what we call them. And uh, those are our uh, E7s, E8s, and E9s. That's what we call it, the chief's mess. We had chiefs who said, you know, we don't get to do a lot here. We're not given a lot of responsibility and we'd like responsibility. So I asked them if they were interested in, in figuring out how to consolidate our command, which 
at the time we had parts of our command were in different parts of the city of Alaska in, in Juneau, Alaska. And they said, yeah, we'll take that on. And not only did they take it on, they basically did everything. So they negotiated how we were going to move our leases and all of that. And they did all of the social, cultural stuff that needed to be done to bring everybody together. Because of course, that's always a problem when you're moving people and, and changing their, their lives. So that was just a great experience for me just saying, go for it. And then they did much better than I ever would have anticipated. So that was really cool. We also had a cruise ship from the 1950s that had sunk right in Juneau Harbor. It had been there for years, but it was starting to leach oil from, from years and years ago. So there were more and more oil slicks and this black, this disgusting, heavy crew that was getting on the shore. And so there was a thought like, well, if we upset this ship, it could cause a huge oil spill. But if we don't do anything, it's going to start, it's really going to be pouring out at some point because the rivets on the joints were just rotting. So we decided to ask the National Pollution Fund Center to open up the fund, the oil pollution fund, and we would do a response. We considered it a response because we said it was an immediate threat to the environment. And we basically, once again, I I used what I learned in, in Los Angeles, Long Beach. I called stakeholders together. We had town hall meetings and We met at the Mendenhall Glacier Park Service Auditorium, and we had our folks basically show, you know, how all this would be done. We had little stations set up and in terms of uh, what was going to take place and what the risks were and all that, and people came and asked questions. And, you know, we got a lot of buy-in from the community, which made it very special. So we were able to do it. We did something extremely novel because we hired this salvage company, Global Diving and Salvage, and they are very clever. <laughs> they do a lot of work worldwide, but they came up and they this, this is a very deep vessel and the water is cold. So moving oil in cold water is very challenging. So they came up with this whole system, which now they use in, in other places, but they came up with this system where they would basically heat the water and move it through like a like a washing machine, basically. They were moving hot water into the tanks and, and continually washing them and pulling the water up. And of course, they were using divers who had to come up periodically pretty frequently because of the depth. So it was quite a, it was an exciting, exciting evolution, but it was also good to, you know, clean up the, <laughs> it was good to clean up the harbor. So that was a really fun part of being stationed there. And I had a woman department head who I particularly, I, I really thought she was amazing. She was our prevention department head, which is the one who does the shipboard inspections. And of course, Alaska has a lot of inspections because of the cruise ship industry. So she was phenomenal. And I remember she was thinking about leaving the service. She had she had two kids. One was born uh, right before she got there. And she thought, and her husband was an engineer, but he wasn't working while they were there. He was taking care of the, the kids at home. And I really wanted her to stay in the service. And she, as it turned out, she did stay in the service and she just left a command in Japan, Activities Far East, which does a lot of our shipping, obviously, before it comes here. And she was a great commanding officer. So it was really wonderful to see someone that you thought a lot about, you know, kind of grow and, and come into their own. And she's just a phenomenal leader. So I, I had a great experience in Alaska as well. Yeah, it sounds like you got to do so much cool stuff while you were in, well, you're still in, so I'm sure there's yeah. more cool <laughs> stuff going on. But it's just, it's so cool to hear all these stories. So when you found out you were being, how does it work? Do you get considered to be 
an admiral and you know about it or does like an announcement come out like how does that work oh so this is interesting you're considered year after year so you're eligible after maybe i don't know how many years of service 24 25 years for me it was probably 24 25 some people it's earlier it just depends how long you've served as a captain and each year you're considered and you're only called if you're selected because it's only, you know, a handful of people in the Coast Guard. It's not a lot of people. So basically you see the list come out each summer and you're not on it. <laughs> that's, uh, that's fine. And actually I was thinking at the point when I did was selected, I was thinking that summer I was looking for other jobs because I thought I'm not going to get selected. I'm 28 years in at that point. <laughs> so I was looking for interesting work. And what had, uh, what was sort of surprising to me was I had attended this joint women's leadership jowls or jewels or something like that. I'd attended that in San Diego, maybe in the spring. And the commandant of the Coast Guard spoke at the time. That was Admiral Zumkoff, who I I just thought so much of of him and his wife. Um, anyway, he spoke and he he said he understands that uh, it's different for women in the service. And if uh, if any of you have some things you want to talk to me about, let me know. I would love to hear from you. And I thought, wow, Colin of the Coast Guard is saying that. I, so I, after the conference, I emailed him and I said, I would like to tell you about some of the concerns that women have in the service. And he invited me to, to talk to him about that. And I was very frank about all kinds of things. And he accepted it. He listened intently. He acknowledged that these things uh, existed and he wanted to do something about it. It was really remarkable to feel so heard, I guess you would say. And so it was very funny. Uh, He called me later that summer and he said, Melissa, I I have some good news. I I would really like to talk to you more about these issues uh, and concerns of women in the service. And I said, oh, okay, sir. And he goes, but I want you to do it as an admiral. So (laughs) that was how I was uh, notified of my selection. So it was really, it was sort of funny, but nice. That's so cool. It's so cool to hear that someone leading the service cares about women and how their experience is different. And then when you emailed him, it wasn't just something he said. It was something that he like took action on. And so what was your role when you became an admiral? Were you? Oh, so this is really funny. People don't think about this. When you become an admiral or general, you are you know, a generalist, I guess, in many ways, but you're just assigned at the will of the commandant in terms of how you're going to, how they're going to figure out how to run the service. So much more complicated, obviously, in the Air Force <laughs> than the Coast Guard. But I was sent to Northcom, Nora Northcom in Colorado Springs, which is very funny to think that there are <laughs> Coast Guard people out there, but we, we are out there because Homeland Defense and Homeland Security are kind of related. So I was sent out there as the deputy in J3 operations. And uh, at the time, I had just adopted this baby girl. And my soon-to-be husband was like, are you kidding me? Like, we're, we're going to be traveling across the country and back and forth. But we did it. And uh, that was my first, uh, my first tour was a joint command tour. Wow. And that adds a whole nother dynamic being becoming a mom and like getting, getting married and like starting your family. Did that add a lot of stress and 
You know what I mean? It was crazy. And, and the only reason we could pull it off, I guess, was, you know, we had the financial ability. My husband's in medicine and it was okay to, you know, buy all these plane tickets. It is a, it's a ludicrous amount of money to maintain two households with childcare and all of these other things. And I was very thankful that Peterson Air Force Base had a, a really good childcare system there with lots of centers and... It was very inexpensive, even at my pay grade. It was like the least expensive you could imagine. So that and the proximity. I lived on base. Daycare was right there. The command was right there. So my husband would fly out to Colorado Springs on some weekends. I would fly back with little Zoe on on weekends sometimes. It was just, it was crazy. Like traveling, as you as you know, I'll know, <laughs> traveling with a baby or a toddler. It's like unbelievable with all the strollers and the diapers and the formula. And, ugh. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was something. But uh you know, it goes by. It all goes by very fast. Yeah, that's really cool. And now you're a rear admiral. So when did that all happen? And what are you doing now? So I uh, I went from the job at Northcom to uh, becoming our head of congressional and, and government affairs and public affairs. So that was a job at headquarters, which I, I really enjoyed. I, I love the whole idea of, you know, how you how you work with others and communicate your missions and what you're doing and, and get support. So I did that and I was promoted a year ago to a rear admiral upper half. And then I was assigned, yeah, I think July, so about a little over a year ago. And then I was assigned to be the uh, Coast Guard TJAG and chief counsel. And I started that in April. So that's been my dream, obviously, as a, as a JAG. So it's really been wonderful. Yeah, it sounds really cool. And are you and your husband living in the same place together now? We are now. He, he actually just went on sabbatical. He's been, we spent, I guess, four years uh, commuting. And now we're together and trying to get used to that. <laughs> but actually, it's, it's good timing because our daughter is in and out of school with this COVID nightmare. So that's uh, having him home has been really wonderful. And we also have a, we have a live-in nanny, thank goodness, because as of yesterday, they decided to quarantine her pod <laughs> at school. So she's home. So uh, having the nanny and my husband around is, is good. Yeah, the COVID has really made life difficult. And especially for parents who both work, it makes it even, they can't imagine it's so difficult. Yeah, it's it's uh, crazy. I don't know how I don't know how people on a single income, you know, dealing with the school issues. It's just very challenging. It's horrible. Yeah, for sure. So you talked a little bit about making changes for women. I didn't want to end without talking about like, have you been able to make any changes? Have there been any policies that you've been able to work on? So one of the things that occurred to me was more cultural than uh, policy driven, but. I was on the Alumni Association board for the Coast Guard Academy maybe about 10 years ago. And one of the things we noticed was that women alumni did not seem as connected with the Academy, even though at that point we were already graduating a lot more women. And so I was talking to my my friends about that, my classmates, who I've really been friends with for life. And we just, we realized it's not about the Alumni Association. It's about women not feeling as connected to the organization, not feeling that they are destined to lead the organization, uh, 
just not thinking big, I guess. I, I, a lot of women, unfortunately, are unbelievably committed to doing their their jobs, but they don't see themselves as leaders of the entire organization. They don't think big. While you might hear a, a man say, oh, it would be really thrilling to be whatever, to be a general, you would never hear a woman saying that. And I'm not sure we know what that's about, but at any rate, that concerned me. And I thought, you know what? I bet we could we could turn this tide around if we got women together and not, you know, necessarily just setting up mentors and all of that, but just giving women an opportunity to meet other women who are really successful at families, not families, you know, whatever, but had really done their dreams. They had lived their dreams and and did think big, didn't limit themselves. So so I started this thing with some other folks called the Women's Leadership Initiative, and we got a lot of backing from some incredible men as well as women. And Basically, what we were doing was we were just bringing people together at events. We were bringing people in business, women in business, and I connected a lot with the Women in International Shipping and Trade Association. And we would hold these events and just really social, much social. Some uh, usually we'd have some, we'd have a, the woman from the industry leader. She would talk a little bit about you know how she kind of climbed up that ladder and the things that happened in her life. And they were personal talks, so it was very engaging. And then we'd uh, have sort of, you know, mixers after. And these were really nice events. We, you know, really nice brunches, cocktail parties, whatever it was. So it was very social. And what do you know? Women love to socialize. So <laughs> pretty soon we were, we were developing this, this network and it was all based on uh, women wanting to get to know other women and seeing like how people had followed different paths in the Coast Guard or beyond the Coast Guard or whatever in the government or not. But there are paths to success and that you don't have to limit yourself because you have a family or, you know, whatever your situation is that you are valued and you have a lot to bring to the table. So that, uh, that grew and grew. It's, there's cha- there are chapters all over the country now. Women are very connected and there's a governance committee that is doing a, a few things. One is that same uh, commandant who I mentioned earlier, he, uh, he made the Women's Leadership Initiative uh, an affinity group, which is, helps because that way when we spend money on things, it's legitimate government business. And so we've been also, I've noticed, and I'm not involved in the governance anymore, they've come up with recommendations on a lot of issues that have, have gone through. So most recently we had a weight, they, they suggested changing the weight program because it disproportionately impacts women. They sent a letter to uh, the commandant basically and said, hey, these are our concerns. This is what's been happening. These are the numbers. This is what you recommend you do. And we have a pilot program now that is doing just that. So it's, it's really funny. I, I didn't, I didn't, dream about, I didn't really want to make this women's leadership thing about changing policies necessarily or or being, I don't know. I, I really just wanted it to be a vehicle for women to achieve their own best power women. But it, it as it turned out, they've been involved in a lot of a lot of issues. So it's uh it's exciting to see and the endowment is I think it's approaching a million dollars now, and that's money that's spent on getting women to leadership opportunities and all kinds of wonderful things, mentoring, connections, all of that. So it's, that's been really wonderful. 
I think that reminds me of like the loneliness that you feel sometimes on the military side. And then when you leave, you feel that same loneliness because you're not connected. And then when there's a place where women can gather together, oh, I'm not alone. I don't, I'm not the only one who feels this way. And then that's what the podcast is. Like whenever I get to talk to women, their stories resonate so much with my story. And it encourages me to keep pushing because it's like, I'm not, I'm not crazy. There's other people who feel the way that I do. And so it's been really a cool way to build a community. And it's exciting to hear about like what a community can do. You think it's just women hanging out, telling their military stories, but there's so much power in that. So that's really cool. Well, it's really amazing what you're doing. And I can imagine the transition must have been difficult. Just going from this full-time go, go, go with everybody relying on you to now your family's relying on you. It's very different, I would think. Yeah, it was a really hard transition out of the military. It was hard, but I'm grateful for it because it's where it got me to where I am today. And I'm really excited about the work that I get to do. So I really love this interview, but I always like to end with one last question, which is what advice would you give to young women considering joining the military? Well, I think it's always neat to experience service and military service in whatever way you want to perform it, but it does change you. So you're not going to be the same person afterwards. And if you're doing it because you want to get the GI Bill or any of that, good for you. I think it's a wonderful way to pay for an education, but you won't be the same afterwards. And that's just the nature of uh, the experience. So get ready for adventure, get ready for things that you did not anticipate happening and get ready to be, to be somebody that you didn't know you had it in you. So I think it's, that would be what I would say. Oh, that's so true. Someone recently asked me and they were like, well, what would your life have been like if you didn't join the military? And I was like, I, I don't even know how to answer that question because it changed me so much. And I'm like, not the same person. And I, I can't imagine life without the military because it's not like it's this tiny thing. It was a huge impact on who I am and where I am today. Yeah, that's interesting. It is kind of all consuming. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed hearing your story and I'm excited to share it with everyone. So thank you. Thank you. It was great talking with you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.